The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. This morning we're going to look together at a, a passage from Mark 14. It isn't a part of any series. Uh, we're between series right now, so this isn't the first, second, or third. It's the only sermon uh, in this series. Uh, <laughs> And we're looking at a, a story that is in all four of the Gospels, but is told differently in all four of those Gospels. Mark and, and Matthew tell it pretty much in the same way, but John and Luke tell it quite differently. And yet, in, in spite of these differences in this story of this woman who anoints Jesus with an expensive ointment, in spite of these differences, there is one similarity that all four of the stories share. And that is that in the midst of this kind of lavish act of kindness and love, for some in the room it is a missed moment, and they don't quite apprehend what is going on. And Jesus takes pains to try and fill them in. So let's look at at Mark 14, beginning at verse 3. Jesus has three times prior to this predicted his death. Uh, for the disciples as they were walking on the road going up to Jerusalem. And now they are in uh, Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and this is what happens. While Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very costly ointment of nard, and she broke open the jar. And she poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, Why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you. And you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. And truly I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Would you join me in prayer, please? Lord, in these moments, by your Holy Spirit, enliven our memories of all that you have done for us and quicken our imaginations and give us energy to respond in gratitude to those good gifts. Help us to hear once again your word of love and your invitation to life and then empower us to live in light of those gifts. For we pray in your name. Amen. My mother tells the story of a time where my sister Nancy, who was four years, who was four years older than me, uh, was out in the backyard playing with one of her friends, Karen. Uh, and they were probably in early elementary school or maybe even preschool at the time that this story took place. 
But my mom was, was working at the kitchen sink, and there was a window above that sink, and just outside was our patio, and the two girls were outside within uh, earshot of my mother. And my sister Nancy's friend, uh, Karen, uh, was setting the stage for a kind of make-believe play that they were going to be doing. And uh, Karen was reeling off a series of, of, of information, really, that was about setting the stage for this, this make-believe that they were going to be doing. And she kept saying, well, let's, let's pretend that you did this and then I did that, and then let's pretend that you said this and that I said that, and then let's pretend that we went here and that you did this and I did that. And, and it, it kept going on and on and on. I mean, just a series of, of plot twists and turns, and Karen just kept making this, this complex, this, this complex story of, that they were going to be acting out. And my mom tells the story that my sister Nancy began to build, you know, about five minutes into this description of various things that they were supposed to pretend. And Karen kept going on and on. And then finally, my sister Nancy said, Karen, let's pretend I already did all that. <laughs> There's a certain kind of exasperation that I think comes over us uh, when we are a part of something where so much time is spent setting the stage that it, it doesn't seem like there's going to be enough time to actually do the thing that we're supposed to be doing. I think of what happens at the end of a typical small group meeting um, when it's about a quarter to nine and all of us are ready to go home and someone says, well, let's share prayer requests. And uh, then we have 10 minutes of prayer requests and we have about two minutes of prayer time because we're going into the prayer requests on and on and on. And, and we spend so much time asking for prayer that we don't have time to pray. Or if you're like me, I shut down at 8.30 and I've been asleep through most of the requests as well. <laughs> There's a sense in which we can fail to participate in what is in front of us because we're so consumed with the task of thinking about what might be coming before us. And when we enter into that space, we miss the moment. We miss what is before us. And our story today from, Luke, from Mark 14 is really about a missed moment. It's the story of this unidentified woman and that's true in, in Matthew and, and Mark's depiction of this, as well as Luke. They, they go to great pains to, to not identify this woman. And she comes into the party at the home of another person we really don't know anything about, and that's Simon the leper. And she breaks open this alabaster flask filled with very, very, very expensive perfume. And she pours it over the head of Jesus. And it's one of those moments that the tension is so thick you could, you could cut it with a knife. And what happens is that in this disturbing moment, I'm sure there was a, a lag time, a, a, a kind of silence, because it, it was so out of context. It was such a non sequitur. It was such an interruption to what people expected. I think of a time here in this sanctuary in one of the evening services when Erin Griggs was still on our staff as an associate pastor and she was preaching away and suddenly a, a woman came forward and just sat by the side of the pulpit right here on the steps and just kind of looked at her. Well, all of us were kind of wondering what to do. 
in the midst of that. And I, I think these situations kind of raise that for us. There's this pregnant moment of silence, and often that silence is broken with some comment that reflects our discomfort. And there's really two explanations for what's happening here. And both explanations actually are, are given voice within this, the context of this passage. The first explanation is that the woman is crazy. That those sitting around see her bring in this, this very valuable resource of, of this expensive perfume and pour it over the head in, of Jesus in all, one fell swoop. And they just say, what a waste. This woman must be crazy. But there's also another perspective of what's going on here, and it's Jesus' perspective. Because Jesus essentially says to those that are gathered in the room, no, she's not crazy. Actually, she's more in touch with reality than all of you. And she gets it. Because you see, she's preparing me for my burial. I sometimes think that there's two kinds of people in the world. There is the... Kind of people who, there are the kind of people who see what happened, and then there are those who focus on what could have happened. Jesus sees in this moment a very lavish expression of gratitude and love. But the complainers in the room see something else. What they see is a senseless waste of a resource that could have done a lot more good and not been used up all at once. And you know that's almost always the case, that something else could have been done. In any situation that we might encounter, you can almost always come to the end of that situation and say to yourself in some way, you know, we could have done this, or we might have thought about that, or we might have taken care of it this way. In this case, what these folks were saying was, Oh my goodness, 300 denarii, just down the drain. They didn't have drains then, but uh, they were gone, wasted, all in one moment. Why, that could have been sold. It could have been sold and, and the money could have created a foundation, the interest of which could have given to the poor forever. It could have been leveraged differently. We could have done so much more than she chose to do with it. Well, you know, it's a valid criticism. Something else could have happened. Something more, something different could have been done. But Jesus doesn't waste a moment in addressing that criticism. And the criticism is totally lost on him. And what he essentially says to the folks gathered in the room is, you missed it. You missed it. By focusing on what could have been, you didn't see what was. Life and love is going on before you in this lavish expression in what you call a waste. But you're so tied up in knots about alternatives and abstractions that you missed what was right in front of you. If you look at what Jesus says again in, in verses 6 through 9, you can see this. She pours out the ointment and they scold her and then Jesus says, Leave her alone. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? 
she's performed a good service. For you always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. In essence, what Jesus says, it's all very well and good to talk about the poor here. And it's important to think about the poor. But you know what the poor are in this context? The poor are an abstraction in this context. They're not right in front of of what's happening before the eyes of the disciples and the others gathered in this room. And what Jesus does is he draws their attention to what has happened, not abstractions and conjectures about what might have happened. And he says, she has done what she could. She's taken up something that is right in front of her. And you all are consumed by your frets and fussings over what might have been done, what could have been done. And in essence, what Jesus is doing is issuing a challenge here. And he says it in that interesting way. He says, the poor you will always have with you. They're all around you. But you won't always have me. And did you concern yourself with the poor when you saw them today? Or are they just a convenient way of diverting attention from this very difficult thing that you're watching right in front of you. What Jesus is doing here is he's referring obliquely to a a passage in Deuteronomy 15 that that we heard earlier, where the same line about the the, the needy will be with you always is is also quoted in that passage in Deuteronomy 15. And the the context of that passage is, is a law about the remission of debt. What was true in Israel was that every seven years they were required to essentially forgive debts. That there would be the remission of, of funding, that, that debts would be forgiven and, and they'd start over in the next seven years. Kind of like what we're experiencing with the mortgage crisis, maybe. I, I, I don't know. I, you know, uh, but there's a, there's a sense in which it was just wiped away. And the admonition in this passage was, don't, when you see a needy neighbor in front of you, don't say to yourself, oh my, the the seven-year remission is coming up and this person's going to have all sorts of money uh, when that seven-year remission comes up, so I I don't need to bother with him. And the the writer of Deuteronomy says, don't be tight-fisted, but open your hands to the poor. Don't be calculating about what's going to happen, but deal with what's right in front of you by by having those open hands. Live with those open hands and not tight fists. Because open hands are are both ready to give and ready to receive. Open hands have have a a looser grip, if you will, on, on life. They're ready to take up what God gives and to let go of what he asks us to share with others. Open hands lower our blood pressure. Tight fists raise it. Because tight fists are hands tightly closed around what we think should be. Tight fists are those things tightly closed around the, uh, the abstractions and the, the conjectures and the, the expectations, clenching control so that we'll be ready for what might be. 
And yet in the midst of that tight fist, we might miss what is right in front of us and what is. It's the difference between a readiness to receive and to participate and a cautious kind of fear about the siege that might come. And it's embodied in a kind of tacit question that's in Jesus' words when he says she's done what she could. He kind of asks us the question, are you doing what you can or are you fretting over what you should do or what you could have done? Don't miss the moment. The bane of our existence is we are creatures, as the the writer of Ecclesiastes says, we are creatures who have a little bit of eternity in our hearts. And what that little bit of eternity in our hearts means is that, you see, we have enough of the knowledge of the future or the sense that there is a future and enough sense that there was a past that we can live in regret over what didn't happen and in anxiety over what might happen. It's a really pleasant factor of our lives. (laughs) And for some reason, that's our default programming. It is so much easier to live in regret about the past or anxiety over the future than it is to live in the moment and to receive what God is giving us. And yet, if the truth be told, all that any of us have is this present moment. We like to convince ourselves that we have some control over the future or that we can do something through our regrets to mend the past. But what we have and what we can know is what is in the moment. And so Jesus issues that challenge to live in the moment and to open our hands. About uh, nine years ago, I was uh, doing a wedding here in the sanctuary, a little over nine years ago, actually, and uh, the family had, uh, for whom the wedding was, was had asked Bruce Larson to come and, and uh, pray the pastoral prayer, the prayer of blessing during the ceremony. And I was about five years into my time here at, at UPC, and, and it was the first time that I had met Bruce, and I met him in the narthex prior to the wedding. And, um, and he, uh, he was very, very warm and, and uh, uh, engaging and, and asked me how it was going and told me that he heard good things about me, which kind of gave me pause because I always wonder about what the other things are that are, people are saying, you know. <laughs> and, and then he said, so how's it going here? And I said, well, I said, it's going pretty well. I like it here. And he, uh, he said, well, tell me about that. And he said, well, the, there is one hard thing, though. I, you know, I used to be the pastor of a 150-member church. And, and when you come to a, a church where there's 4,000 members, it's kind of hard to figure out how to translate what you learned in that 150-member church to the 4,000-member church. It's hard to know and figure out what it means to be a pastor in such a big place. And without missing a beat, he just said, oh, he said, don't try and figure it out. Don't try and figure it out. Just hold on and enjoy the mess. (laughs) 
It's the best piece of advice I've ever gotten about being a pastor. It is the absolute best piece of advice. Because that's what pastoral ministry is. It's choosing to enter into the mess of people's lives in order to look for and proclaim the signs of what God is doing to show up and to redeem things. It's the best piece of advice that I've ever gotten, but it's the hardest piece of advice to follow. Because if you're anything like me, you don't like messes. Just look at my sock drawers sometime. I like things ordered. I like things knowable. And yet I don't think I'm alone in that. But the reality is, is that there are messes. And the other truth that's there is that it's often in the mess itself that God shows up in more powerful ways than we would have seen otherwise. Because somehow the disorientation of that awakens our senses to what is true always, and that is that he is there. So the admonition of this text and of Bruce Larson is clear. We can live holding on loosely with open hands to receive what God is doing and to be open to it, or we can live with tightly clenched fists. And if we're going to clench them tightly around something, then tighten them around that bar of the roller coaster that God is getting us a ride on so that we can enjoy the ride and enjoy the mess. Because God's at work and he wants us to see it and to join him in it. So let's pray. Lord, for all of your gifts to us, we give you thanks. Our hope is in you. Our lives are are rooted in your love. So help us to hear of that gift once again and empower us by your Spirit to receive both your admonition and your empowerment to consecrate our lives to you and to take up what you have put before us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301 extension 117.